We're beginning a new summer series uh, this week that I'm calling 10 People That You Probably Don't Know. 10 People That You Probably Don't Know. These are people that are in the Bible who, who uh, have a life and a ministry that's maybe not as well-known as some of the others that we usually study, but uh, they really should get a little bit more attention because of their character and because of the things that they did in ministry and their faithfulness to the Lord. I've really always been um, kind of fascinated by people on the fringe and by the Bible accounts that aren't as familiar because there are a lot of great spiritual truths in there. And we need to mine that truth out. You know, if you've taken the Bible study methods class that I always say you got to dig deeper, we got to find the, the accounts and find uh, the truths that are in Scripture that we don't normally look at. And we have our go-to passages, right? We have the passages that we run to when we're discouraged or when we need um, help or when we just want to praise the Lord. I know the five or ten passages that I tend to gravitate to, but there are a lot of other great accounts in the Bible um, that we don't know about or maybe we haven't studied enough. So we're going to start this morning with the one person of the ten who will be most familiar to uh, to us. You probably have already turned there. It's in Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. Now, in the Bible, there are, um, there are two significant women who kind of have past experiences that were sordid and were embarrassing and um, kind of makes us cringe a little bit, like maybe we shouldn't talk about them while the kids are in the room. But they were significant women, and they really had an incredible impact uh, on the work of God, despite having kind of a socially questionable character. The one is Mary Magdalene, who we see in Scripture uh, was filled with demons. Christ delivered her from those, became very close to Jesus, probably the the woman who was second closest to Jesus other than his mother. Uh, There are a lot of people that speculate that maybe Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. We don't have historical proof on that, but whatever the case was, Mary Magdalene's past was, was not something that you'd want to put on a resume. The other woman that kind of had a sordid character was the one that we're going to study this morning, a harlot named Rahab. Now, the setting for this passage is kind of a key transitional time for Israel, They are standing on the brink of the promised land. They finally finished this four-decade stint through the wilderness. And now they're on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, which is uh, not a wide river. In some places, it's as wide as this room. Other places, it's maybe double this. But it's not the Mississippi. It's just a little river running through the desert. And on the other side of the river, on the western edge of the Jordan, is the town of Jericho. So Israel is camped on the eastern side. Across the river is the town of Jericho. And they are looking at this land that God promised to Abraham. They've had a leadership transition. Moses is dead. He went up into the wilderness, and God met with him, and he died. And now Joshua is the new leader. And the people are really probably a mix at this point of anxiety and antsiness and um, anticipation. Uh, as they kind of don't really know what's going to come next. They know they're supposed to go into the land, but they don't really know what's going to happen. And there have been many mistakes along the way. Their whole uh, generation of fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers has died in the wilderness, so everybody at this point is under 40, except for Joshua and Caleb. 
So this is a new group. It's a group that hasn't had a long time to serve the Lord, that has heard about the past but hasn't lived through it, and now stands in anticipation of what's going to happen next. So everything about this is a little bit unknown. They know the promise of God. They know they're supposed to be in there, but they don't know how, when, why, or what it's going to look like. And when we face unknowns like that, sometimes it brings out the test of our character. Are we going to panic? Are we going to worry? Or are we going to trust the Lord? And Joshua now, as their leader, has to take this group of people into the promised land and, and conquer as God had said they will. Now, Joshua's got faith, but he's not sure about the people. So he sends in two spies into the land, and they're going to go in and scout it out and gauge how difficult it will be to occupy the land from a human standpoint. So let's pick it up in verse 1. We're just going to read this verse and then draw some conclusions and then keep going. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. Now, stop there for a moment, because there are a couple details we've got to grab, and there's an important question that we need to ask. One detail is that Jericho is not the only place that they go to. He says, go in and spy out the land, but make sure you spend some time checking out Jericho, because Jericho is going to be the first city that we're going to have to get through to go deeper into the land. So make sure you spend time finding out what's going on there. And that not only was a huge test of their faith, but it was also a test of their perspective. Because they knew God had a plan, and yet as they looked at it from a human standpoint, there was a great military challenge because Jericho was well fortified. Jericho is considered the oldest city on the face of the earth. It's also the one that's at the lowest elevation. It's down kind of near the Dead Sea as the Jordan comes down into the Dead Sea. If you go north about 5 or 10 miles, Jericho sits there. So it's at a very low elevation, and it's very hot, and it's very humid because it's right near the water. And it was a very old fortified city. The city had 12-foot walls that in some places were at least 6 feet thick. So try to think about that visually. That aisle is about 6 feet thick. And 12 feet, I don't know, would be as, maybe as high as the, the edge of the balcony. So you can imagine how, how strong this was, how impressive this was. Scholars even say that some of the walls were so thick that houses were put on top of them. So this is a significant battleground. This is not something where um, they're just going just gonna to waltz right in and say, you know, we, we'd like to take your city, um, so please drop the moat and we're going to come in. This is, a, this is a major fortress that they're going to have to get through. And they're just a ragtag group of people. They're young. They don't have any weapons to speak of. They don't have any fighting experience. All these people have done have been born and walk in the desert. That's their whole life. They have no discernible skills. They've never held a job. They've never been in a war. They've never really seen conflict, so to speak, other than the internal one of having to wander in the desert. So, so there's no experience that you can rely on at this point and say, well, good, at least we've got that 100,000 people that are skilled in war and they have armor and shields and swords and they're ready to go. It's just a group of young people. So now they face this battle. 
And yet, even though they have no skill, no weapons, no experience, they have the Lord. And that is enough in this situation, and it's enough in every situation. The Lord had promised victory, and he had promised occupation, and they were going to be unlike the previous generation because they were going to trust his plan and provision. And yet the way the Lord is going to carry this out is a little bit unorthodox because the person that they're going to connect with and the person that's going to help them conquer Jericho is this woman, Rahab, the prostitute. Now, we want to ask questions of the text, right? Everybody say yes, so I know you're awake. We want to ask questions of the text, right? Yes. Why do they go to a harlot's house? You ever thought about that? Why is this the method by which God is going to execute his plan? Why would they seek refuge in a place where a prostitute was? Why, why would she be the one to give them insight into Jericho? Why not just try to hide and overhear a conversation between two people to find out what was going on? Or why not try to find some city official who's disillusioned with what's going on and, and, and maybe get together with him and say, look, what's the, what's the weakness of the city? How do we get in here and attack? Or why not go to their enemies and say, what do you think is the, is the, is the strength and weakness of Jericho? How are, how are we going to get in there? Why Rahab? Now, one explanation would be that by going to her house, they wouldn't draw any attention because people were used to seeing strangers at her house. So it wouldn't be any different to see these men come to her door. But I believe the key, and this is what I believe the Lord gave us this week, in, in answering that question, is to not look at it from the angle of the men, but to look at it from the angle of Rahab and her situation. Look back at the text for a second. We'll read this in a minute. But the Spirit describes her in verse 2 as a harlot. The original meaning of the word is adulterous. Now, the text is unclear whether she was still practicing this or whether this was a past stigma, but I think we can answer the question. It may have been that in a former life that she was um, indecent, that she was purient morally, that, that she had been loose, so to speak, or maybe she had been married before and she had been unfaithful to her husband, but that's probably not the explanation because of the strict laws and adultery and marriage. Uh, you could be stoned for that. So we have to conclude, because we're going to look at more in a second, that this was a past situation that she had been a harlot in her past, but now she was changed. Whatever the case is, Rahab is stigmatized and defined by this title, Rahab the harlot. Now what's important about that, and this is where it starts to draw into application for us, is, is that she didn't let it defeat her. Why? Because she was strong or because she didn't care what people thought? or because morally she just was indifferent? No. The reason she didn't let it defeat her was because her heart had been changed spiritually, and now she was sensitive to the Lord. You remember a couple weeks ago when we studied Cyrus, we said that God can even use people who are away from him, who reject him. He can use them in a way to, to speak to them and use them. But Rahab does believe in the Lord. We'll see it in just a minute in verse 11, that, that she trusted the Lord. So, so we have to conclude that the moral infidelities in her past, 
that she's no longer who she's defined by, and her heart is forgiven and purified. But here's the problem. She's still called Rahab the harlot. Can you imagine if God still called us by the names of all her sins? Paul the liar. Paul the cheat. Paul the disrespectful to his parents. Paul the one who lusts. Paul the one who who is lazy. Paul the one, who whatever. I'm not going to tell you all my sins, or I'll just tell you part of them. Imagine if God defined us like that, rather than bearing the name of Christ, that we're Christians. This is Rahab the harlot. And yet Rahab the harlot is affirmed for her faith in the great chapter on faith in Hebrews 11 and in James 2 where the Spirit says she was justified by her faith. She was not defined by being a harlot in her past. She was defined by trusting in the Lord now. And that's a great spiritual principle for us this morning. Write some things down today. Let's, let's interact again with the text because we just saw this at the communion table and we sang it in that last song, Pardon for Sin and a Peace that Endureth. There are two great facts here that are basic facts. We know them if we're believers. If you're not a believer this morning, this is the facts that will change your life. But there are two great facts about this that we need to understand. One is that the Lord is willing to save anyone, and he can save anyone. The Lord is willing to save anyone, and he can save anyone because of the sacrifice and atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, you've heard that all throughout the message, uh, all throughout the morning. We've celebrated it. We've sang about it. We're studying about it. But we need to understand this. God is willing and able to save anyone because of Christ. Now, Rahab didn't know Jesus yet. She didn't know who Jesus was, even though she's going to end up marrying somebody who will be a great descendant in the line of Jesus. But what did Rahab know? She knew how to trust God for her salvation. She knew just like Abraham who the Bible says in Hebrews 11, Abraham trusted the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. Well, Rahab is named a couple verses later in the same chapter because she trusted the Lord and it was counted to her for righteousness. For us, in 2014, we do know the Lord. We do know Christ. We just celebrated it. We know that he did pay the price for our sin. We know that he offered himself as a sacrifice. We know that he made atonement. So when we confess our sin and we turn from our sin and we trust him to save us, we will be saved. And listen, nobody's exempt from that offer. Doesn't matter what your past is. Some of you have a past. Some of you, if you got up and started talking, we would go, you're kidding me. I didn't know that about you. You did what? Wait a second. That, that's who you were before? And you know what? The past doesn't matter because the past has been erased. The past has been exonerated. And God's love and mercy are so wide that even when we've been disgraced by our sin, even when we still hold that stigma, that God can forgive us and will forgive us. And that leads to the other great fact, is that the Lord can use anybody who has a past. He can eliminate any personal and social stigma that is on your life, anything that you're embarrassed by, anything that's painful to you, anything that you cringe at when somebody brings it up. God can use you 
but we've got to fully surrender our hearts like Rahab did, and we've got to let him cleanse our heart and mind, and then we've got to turn from that sin. We can't say, well, I'm stigmatized by it, but I'm still doing it. No, if God forgives us, then we need to turn from it, and as we turn from it, then we start to obey and we start to listen to him. And that's what Rahab does here. Look at what, what she does here because her role in this is so beautiful and it's so key to what happens. Look at verse 2. The king of Jericho, it was told to the king of Jericho saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, uh, Yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I don't know where they went. Pursue them quickly, or you'll overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stacks of flax, which were laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued them, on the road as far as, uh, so, excuse me, to the Jordan in the fjords, in the, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble reading, in the fjords. And as soon as they were pursuing them, had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our lives for yours, if, we do not, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now, here's what really struck me, and I've studied this passage a lot of time, and you probably have too. What really struck me this week is that This was not a secret. In town, people knew that these men, these spies, had come to her house. And and the king knew it. Word got to him. And he not only knew that they were there, but he knew their motive. He said, they're here to spy out this land. Now, it's easy to read the Bible sometimes without really, really putting ourselves and infusing ourselves into the setting of the time, and without fully understanding exactly what's going on. I, I had done, I had studied this passage before. I'd never really felt it like I did this week. Without a doubt, throughout the whole known world, people knew about what was going on with the Jews, and they knew they were headed to Canaan. And that made sense, because if you've got two million people walking through the desert that had come out of slavery in Egypt, that had gotten through the Red Sea somehow, whether they believed that it had been parted or not, somehow they had gotten on the other side of the Red Sea. And now they were wandering through the wilderness, 
and, and there was something supernatural about this, and now they had walked up to Canaan. I mean, they didn't need the internet for that, right? They, they didn't need the Canaan Tribune or the Canaan Daily News to say, hey, the Jews are coming, here are pictures, film at 11. They knew. Caravans had passed them in the desert. The, the word had gotten out. Egypt no longer has two million Jewish slaves. They're headed through the desert, and they're walking up to Canaan, and something is going on. So the king of Jericho is kind of anticipating. He's kind of saying, something's going to happen. So it's no surprise when they show up on the eastern shore, and he can look out. It's not that long a place. It's like maybe here to the lake of understanding how far away they are. So he's sitting in his palace, and the, and the city of Jericho had a huge tower right in the middle. It was about 50 or 60 feet high. So the king could go up in the tower, and he could look across the Jordan and see a mass of people gathered on the shore. So he's not stupid. He says, something's going on. And when he hears the two strange Jews are spotted at Rahab's house, he sends word and says, bring them here. Come on, Rahab. I know you're hiding those guys. I know they're here to check out what's going on. Bring them here. Now, interesting, look at the text for a second. Rahab doesn't tell the truth. She says, oh, they were here. I don't really know who they were. I don't know what was going on, but they took off. If you hurry up, king, you can find them. They're, they're running through the desert back to where they came from, and you better hurry. You can find them. Now, let's stop for a second because the kids aren't in the room. How do we defend this? When our kids say, well, Rahab lied so I can lie about why I was out last night. How do we defend what happens here? How, how can the Lord approve of lying when he clearly says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie? You ever ask that question in the text? It's a hard question, isn't it? If somebody wants to come up and answer it, I'd be glad to sit down. Actually, there's a great answer to it. Rahab knew the king was evil. Rahab knew that his intentions were to capture the spies and try to stop what Israel was doing. But she knew something else. She knew that the plan of God was in place and that God was going to lead his people to take Jericho and there was nothing the king could do to stop it. And she knew that it was better to obey God than to obey an ungodly king. It's very similar to the situation with the wise men when Herod says, when you find him, come back and tell me because I want to worship him too. And they knew that his intention was wrong. They knew that he was evil, so they ignored him and went the other way. Rahab here does what she does because she's working within the plan of God to bring his people into the land. And she explains her rationale. If you look back at verse 9, she explains her rationale there. And what's interesting about these verses is that she gives four distinct facts that only she could have known by the leading of the Lord. There's no way Rahab could have known these things without God giving her some insight. First of all, in verse 9, she knows the Lord's already given the Jews the land. She has unique spiritual insight to know that there's no question there's no sense debating it. There's no sense of hope for the people of Jericho. The outcome is not going to change. The Lord is in charge. The land was prepared for the Jews, and there was nothing the Canaanites could do to stop that. So she was operating in the confidence of what God was doing. Now, here's 
little spiritual application for us. You and I need to live and pray with that kind of confidence in the provision and sufficiency of the Lord. You and I need to move forward with confidence that what God says he will do, that his promises are sure, that he will provide for us, and that he will be worshipped someday by every knee and every tongue. I've started to see in a lot of uh, social media and conversations with people that, that a lot of Christians are kind of back on their heels with their faith. They're kind of worried and, and, and getting stirred up about the world, but, but they're not doing anything more than posting how frustrated they are. And what we need to do, and I'm not being critical here, please understand my heart. What we need to do instead of just getting worked up on Twitter is we need to call on the Lord and ask him to act. The world is struggling right now. Our country is a mess. We are not going in a good direction. So what do we do? Do we get frustrated or do we say, Lord, you're going to have to work. Either take us out of here or bring some, some revival to our land because we can't do this. God's already won the battle. He's already made us overcomers. So we need to stand for him and we need to pray that way. Rahab said, look, we're a strong city and we've got a wall and we're great and our king is powerful and you're just a bunch of losers who don't have any experience. But you know what? God's on your side. We have no chance. And we need to look at the world and say, you know what? God's not on your side. We're on the side of the Lord, and the Lord is going to be victorious. And all you kings and leaders who think you can stand and defy the Lord, and nothing will happen, your day is coming. Second, would you see in verse 9, that Rahab knew that the people of Jericho and Canaan would be destroyed by the Jewish invasion to the point that, that even before the first battle cry had sounded, she says in verse 9, when we heard what happened, we lost all courage and we our, our hearts melted. It's been depressing around here in Jericho because we heard what happened and we started to see you assemble over on the eastern side of the Jordan and, and, and we got nothing. What a statement about the power of the Lord that even the evil Canaanites who are known for their brutality and known for their idol worship, they, they have no emotional strength. Listen now, the power of the Lord is such that he says, when you resist the devil, he will do what? Tell me. He'll flee from you. It's not to undermine the devil. It's not to say he doesn't have power, not to say he's not a strong enemy. But God's power is greater. And when we resist the devil, he runs from us. Are we thinking that way? Are we living that way? Or are we scared and timid and kind of frustrated and, and tentative to move forward? Then she says in verse 10, the Lord has been the one who dried up the Red Sea. And the Lord has been the one who given, has given you victories. And that had to be completely disconcerting to the people that they were now invading because despite their armies and despite their strength, the Jews had a greater advantage that nobody could match. And then she says one more thing. Because of this, because the Lord brought you out of Egypt, because he's given you the land, because he's been with you the whole way, I have concluded that the Lord is God. 
That the God you worship is the God I'm going to worship. That the God you worship is the true God. Not all these fake gods, not all these idols that we have in Jericho. We, we don't have any more, I, or I don't have any more confidence or, or hope in those. I have confidence in the Lord. You know what will put our opponents on their heels? You know what will mitigate against the, the, the moral decline in our culture and the governmental changes that are reducing and, and marginalizing Christianity? It is for Christians, listen now, to hold strong biblical convictions and to openly stand for the Lord. Because nobody can stand against the Lord and win. If we're like the world, then the world won't respect us and they'll keep marginalizing us. But if we're bold about defending the Bible and bold about defending the gospel, the Lord's influence will be strong and we will see change because he's left us and empowered us to do his work. And we have a responsibility to do that work. Rahab was a harlot. She was culturally uh, diminished. She was uh, socially outcast. Her character was impugned. She was disrespected. There seemed to be nothing that she could offer. And yet, hear it, she's sensitive to the Lord and she follows his leading. And there's a great spiritual principle that we need to get here. And that is that if we really listen to the Spirit and we really pay attention to what's going on around us, many times we can gain an unusual insight into what the Lord's doing. I don't know about you, but I want to know what the Lord's doing next. I want to know how the Lord's leading me. I want to know how he's leading my family. I want to know how he's leading our church. I want to know one day when we'll have a church that has air conditioning. I want to know those things. Now, how do we discern that? We study the word and we listen to his spirit. But, but what we really need to do now is get on our faces before the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want from us? And how can we follow you? And then we need to pay attention and look around. What's going on? Lord, how are you moving? Lord, how are you stirring us? One of the greatest attacks against Christians right now is that we're too busy and we're too distracted. And you know what? We did it to ourselves. And it needs to change. We're so busy and overloaded with our schedules, with entertainment and sports and vacations and all the things we do, we don't make the quality time to be in the presence of the Lord, and that's essential to our spiritual health. And we're so busy and distracted, and we've got our technology relationships and our virtual relationships that, that we often don't make quality time to be in the presence of our spouses and our kids and, and our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that hurts our relational health. Julie and I got away for a couple of days for our anniversary this week, went to Lake Geneva, just, just really did nothing. We kayaked and ate dinner. I mean, that was it. And you know what? It was awesome. Because it had been a long time since we had really sat down without distraction. And then whenever one of us would pull out our phone, we'd look at the other and say, mm -mm, nope, talk to me. Because it's easy, right? There's a lull in the conversation. Well, let's, see, let's check and see what's going on with the rest of my life. No, we need quality time with each other. And we get so caught up, right? Come on, affirm this. We get so caught up with everything that's going on that we miss that. And we miss time with the Lord. Rahab the harlot knew what God was doing before he did it. Don't you want to have that kind of discernment in your life and ministry? Don't you want to sense the Lord, oh, the Lord's about to work. And it's not just words, it's reality. 
We can have it if we're sensitive to the Lord. But she went one step further. And this is what I really want to get to as we conclude. Even though other people, and we can see this, look back at the text for a second. We can see it in verse 9 and verse 10 and verse 11. That everybody knew and their hearts melted and there was no more courage. But even though a bunch of people knew God was working, Rahab was the only person in the city that did something about it. She was the only person in the city that took action. We can hear the word of the Lord. We can sense the leading of the Lord. We can know that God is doing something, and we can say, isn't it wonderful? God's at work. But if we don't take action on that, it's worthless to know about it. In fact, it's almost a travesty to God that we would know something and not do anything about it. Oh, we heard about you. You're coming. Yeah, oh boy, oh boy. Yeah, we heard about the Red Sea. We heard about how you got out of Egypt, and we know that this is a problem, and now you're on the other side, and you guys have come in. You came to my house looking for help. Let me tell you, we are scared. We're terrified. We know you're going to take this city. We know you're going to take the land. We know God's on your side. There's nothing. We are worthless. We're emotionally melting. But she's the only one that says, let me help you because I want to serve God. Don't sit, and I'm saying this to myself, okay? I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching with you. Don't sit and say, God's at work, and then do nothing about it. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and when God stirs you and shows you, this is what I want to do, then get busy doing it. She says, here's what's going to happen. I know you guys are coming, and when the attack happens, make a pledge to me. I've helped you, I've been nice to you. Now you be nice to me. You protect my family. I'm going to put a scarlet thread. I'm going to put a cord out the window. I'm going to toss it out. When your people come in and they look up and they see my window, you need to tell them, don't attack that room. Don't go to that house. You spare that family. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 6 when they come in and when Israel attacks, Joshua says, go up to Rahab's house and protect her and pull them out. And they drag them out. They pull them out of the city and they put them in the Israelite camp. And as the city falls, Rahab and her family are protected because she trusted. Now let's draw a couple applications. Give me three more minutes and let's finish. Let's draw some applications because this is not just a nice story. How it applies to us is important. So let me give you three truths, okay? Let's, let's share three truths together that we need to live by this week. The first truth that we need to kind of correlate to our lives is that our past reputation and our experiences don't have to hinder us. Our past reputation and our experiences don't have to hinder us because we know the power and the grace of God. Whatever it is in your life that's your stigma, whatever it is that's your story, whatever it is that's your cringe moment, that if people knew or maybe they do know and they look at you differently, whatever it is, that doesn't have to hinder you because you know the power and grace of God. Rahab knew, listen now, she knew about the Red Sea she knew about Israel's victories. But she also knew that what should have taken them two or three weeks to get from Cairo to Jericho had taken them 40 years. And there had to be a reason. 
I don't know if she asked the spies. I don't know if the Lord gave her extra discernment. But at some point, Rahab said to herself, something going on here. Why did it take you guys four decades, four decades to do what you could have done in three weeks? What's the story there? What's going on? Why, why did that happen? And maybe she had that conversation with them, and they said to her, well, <laughs> let's tell you about it. We weren't there when it first happened, but we're here now. She had to understand that the same mercy and the same deliverance and the same grace that God had shown to the Jews when they defied him and built a golden calf and danced around it naked and said, this is our God which brought us out of Egypt, that the same mercy that God had shown to them he would show to her, even with her past. Rahab the harlot, she would be defined by it forever, but she was sensitive to the truth, and she understood that God's grace is for everybody, no matter what your reputation, no matter what your past, no matter what your experience is. Second, we need to be willing to take a stand for what's right, even if it's unpopular or makes us an outcast. We need to take a stand for what's right, even if it's unpopular and makes us an outcast. And I promise you, if we stand for the word of God and stand for Jesus Christ and stand for the gospel, we're already an outcast. Let's not believe this lie that we're a Christian nation evermore. We're not. So automatically by saying, we're going to be people of the word of God and we're going to talk about you lived and you died and you rose again on high and we're going to declare that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. We're already marginalized. It's already happened. Don't think it's coming. It's here. It's already here. And I see it article after article on Facebook or in the news and people are like, I can't believe this has happened in America. It's already happened. We're behind. But that doesn't diminish us. It says we've got to take a stand for what's right. Rahab took a stand to the king, and he could have killed her, and she defied her people. She's now saying, yeah, we know you're going to win. I'm going to help you. But she knew she was right, and she wanted to be on the Lord's side. How often do we intentionally take that position? Do we run toward the opportunity to serve the Lord like David did toward Goliath, or do we shy away? How do we intend to be his witnesses and his ambassadors if we aren't willing to talk about him and defend him? And increasingly, we're going to be challenged to do that. It's going to get harder and harder, but we have to be strong and biblical. Last thought. Our trust in the Lord must be complete and unwavering. Rahab is commended in the New Testament for her faith. And for an Old Testament harlot from a carnal city to be mentioned in the same chapter as Abraham and Noah and Moses, there's no way her faith was timid or hidden in any way. She trusted in the authority of the Lord. She trusted in the word of the Lord. She trusted in the plan of the Lord. And she trusted those who were serving the Lord. She recognized the full authority of God. And she put her confidence 
in him. And she said, no one can stand against him. No one can stand against the power of God. And I need to trust him. Listen, I'm done. There is nothing more. There is nothing that is more important in your life and my life than to fully trust in the Lord. Don't glide over that because you've heard it before and because it's basic theology. Too often our faith is surfacey and it's partial, but God says, I need your faith to be complete. I need you to trust me with everything. Rahab puts her faith on the line. She trusts God with everything she has, and the Lord rewarded her. Now, if a harlot in Jericho could do that, how much more should you and I do it who have been personally redeemed by Christ and have his spirit dwelling in us and have other believers around us to say, you can do this? Our faith should not be weak. Our faith should not be diminished. Our faith should not be partial. It should be absolute, complete dependence and trust and confidence in the Lord because he is so good to us. We sang about it all morning. We've studied it all morning. God is faithful and he's good and he deserves our trust. Let's close our eyes. I don't know what you felt coming in this morning. I don't know what your attitude has been. I don't know what your experiences are. I don't know what you're struggling with. But I've sensed in my spirit that some of us are struggling this morning. Some of us are hurting. Maybe it's something somebody's done to you. Maybe it's a pain of your past. Maybe it's embarrassment about something. But listen, if we can see it in Rahab, we can see it in anybody God is not concerned with the names that are attached to us based on who we are and what we've done. He is concerned about our soul, and he gave Christ to redeem us. And if you're a believer this morning, then you need to live in that confidence that he has delivered you and changed you, that you are not the same person that you used to be before. The devil's going to lie to you He's going to accuse you. He's going to bring up your past. And you need to recognize that he's doing that and release from that because God has wiped it away. If you're struggling this morning, I want to encourage you, go to the Lord. Ask him for his help. Ask him for confidence and boldness for him that you would not be defined by that, but you would be defined as being a child of God who is saved by his mercy. And if you don't know the Lord this morning, you came in here and you've never trusted in Christ, you've heard enough. You know that Christ died for your sins and rose again. You know that he took your place. You know that when we trust in him and we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It'll all be erased. But you've got to take the step of trusting in him, and he's worthy of it. I can tell you, after four decades, he's worthy of it. Lord, help us this morning, we pray. Give us strength for the battle. 
we know that the tide is turning and we know that we are swimming against it. We know that there are times when we're isolated and alone where we feel like we're the only one taking a stand. But Lord, we pray we won't be discouraged in those times, but it'll give us greater strength and greater confidence. Lord, I pray you would empower us. I pray you strengthen us for the battle. I pray that we would be people that seek you diligently and trust you implicitly and that you would begin to really show us what you want us to do and how we can best serve you. Because Lord, you're faithful and you're good and you have plans that exceed far beyond our understanding. Encourage, Father, those who are discouraged. Strengthen those who are weak. Bring joy to those whose hearts are downcast this morning. And we pray this would be a great week of serving you and trusting you and seeing your hand at work in our lives. Lord, you are so faithful. We'll say it again this morning. You're so faithful and you're so good and we praise you. We love you and we thank you for all you've done. Use us in a mighty way this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.